Welcome to another episode of the Hourglass Investing Podcast, a series deep diving into businesses and investment opportunities. I'm your host, Jared Leary. And today's episode will be part two of a peep inside my own portfolio at the Trade Desk, one of the more expensive and risky assets that I own, but with lots of potential growth ahead of it still. Hello, hello, guys. Part two of the mini series on the trade desk is now upon us. Uh, so I'm going to start this off with a little catch up before we get into things here. First off, I'm aware and sorry that this episode is a day later than the normal Tuesday release date. I was busy wrapping up what I think is going to be a fun little surprise that's coming out this Thursday, uh, so tomorrow, through my Substack series. It's outside of my normal release schedule, so that's why the podcast got a little delay. If you're not following along on there already, make sure to give the Substack a quick follow, and I promise you will get compensated for the later podcast episode. Now to get into part two of the Trade Desk. Last week I released part one, and in that episode I dived into the business model, you know, where the Trade Desk's revenues come from, what programmatic advertising is, and then also a little bit into the founder and CEO Jeff Green. So that episode took a little bit longer than I was initially thinking it would, so I decided to turn it into the very first mini-series on the podcast, so that in part two I could get into the finer details a bit, the industry, the balance sheet, some of the growth levers and the moat the Trade Desk has, as well as a surface scratch at the valuation. And I feel like this maybe goes without saying, but hey, just in case, if you haven't got to part one of the Trade Desk, I highly recommend going and listening to that first and then coming back. It really sets the stage for what I'm going to be talking about today. And so with that out of the way, let's get right into it. And I want to start with the advertising industry itself and sort of the competitive landscape for the trade desk, as that is a big risk towards the business model. And the reason that it's a big risk, as I mentioned in last week's episode, the trade desk is operating in an $830 billion total addressable market. That's, that's huge. I mean, obviously it would be. Advertising kind of makes the world go round. And while that's a good thing in the sense that the Trade Desk has a ton of upward space to potentially grow into, it also poses a risk in the sense that, you know, it, it draws a lot of players into the space, and then those players become extra competition for the Trade Desk to deal with. And this whole situation is kind of exaggerated by the fact that, you know, despite already being massive, the global digital advertising industry is still growing at a nearly 8% compound annual growth rate. There's some decent tailwinds coming from the growth of Connected TV, which is the fastest growing digital channel right now, as linear television, remember that's satellite, cable, etc., kind of dies out and everyone's moving towards these streamers. Streamers, in turn, are moving towards these ad models. So lots of tailwinds there to fuel that growth in an already massive market, and you, you know what that means, that's a lot of competition. Then the other major industry risk is that the Trade Desk's model of programmatic advertising is by no means the dominant model. So the Trade Desk tries really hard not to paint themselves as an industry disruptor, which is smart because that attracts a lot more pushback from the incumbent players when you're trying to advertise, <laughs> advertise uh, as a disruptor. But honestly, the reality is that that's exactly what they are. They're a disruptor. They're trying to make a new 
open internet method of digital advertising the dominant model rather than the walled garden approach that you see from Amazon, from Meta, from Google, etc. And that makes them not just a disruptor either, but a disruptor against some of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world. I mean, just between those three that I just mentioned, Google, Meta, and Amazon, you're looking at a market cap of over $4 trillion. And the trade desk at $35 billion looks like a literal peanut beside those guys. Now, I spent a lot of the last episode talking about the advantages that the trade desk offers compared to that walled garden approach. And just because that was sort of a longer episode already, I didn't really get too much into the benefits of that walled garden approach or even really much of what that looks like. So basically, you know, the the trade desk represents the advertiser. They work to drive maximum returns on ad spend, full visibility through analytics into the effectiveness of their ad campaigns, but they work with a separate ad exchange and a fairly wide variety of ad platforms. Those are the, the publishers where the ads actually appear to the consumers. Now, walled gardens work off a similar model, but instead of working with a separate exchange and other platforms, they run that entire process by themselves, all of it. So rather than getting a portion of the dollars that go towards other ad platforms, like the Trade Desk does, they get the whole kit and caboodle from advertisers. That's 100%, but they also run every part of that system. And advertisers get a few advantages from this method as well. Namely, that they have immediate access to massive platforms, right? I mean, I was picking on Meta in part one of this series, so maybe I'll just continue on with that one for this episode. So if I advertise on Meta, I'm advertising on a platform of nearly 4 billion people. Just right off the bat, that's like half the world's population. I mean, that kind of scale is really, really hard to beat. I was talking about platforms like LinkedIn, Spotify, Yahoo, I think ESPN as well, last episode. So they're partnered with the Trade Desk. And while those are all individually large platforms, they're nowhere near the scale of Meta, even just by itself. And then pretty similar conversations with Google, right? Another 4.3 billion users right there. And again with Amazon as well, right? Like it's hard to replicate the size of these platforms and As a result, it's also super, super hard to disrupt them. So if that's the case, what what is the investment thesis in the Trade Desk? Essentially, the Trade Desk succeeding is relying on the fact that the sum of the many, you know, all of the many, many ad platforms that aren't their own walled gardens is going to be equal to, or maybe even greater than, the platforms of these few giants, Amazon, Meta, Google that the entire open internet is ultimately going to connect more people and more brands across the world than the walled gardens will be able to. And the Trade Desk isn't really trying to put the walled gardens out of business either. Sort of what they're talking about with not being a disruptor per se, it's just trying to create a system where smaller platforms are able to maximize revenues and advertisers are able to scale their marketing across a wide variety of platforms across, ideally, the entire open internet. But there's just no getting around the fact that these walled gardens offer immediate access to huge numbers of people. You know, they're well known as being the dominant digital advertisers. They're on top of the game. In 2020, the triopoly of walled gardens, Meta, Google, Amazon, they got 64% of the entire digital advertising market spend that year. And the Trade Desk is still in major, major catch-up mode. 
It's not even the only demand-side platform, DSP, that's trying to compete against these massive players. So it's got competition on all sides, it's got a long ways to go, and even as they build out their network of advertisers, build out that number of ad publishers, and all of that feeds into that growth flywheel that I was talking about in the last episode, I mean, while they're doing that, these walled gardens just continue to expand their advantage. So basically, what all this means is that the Trade Desk has massive, like stupidly massive competition from the already established players in the space. They have competition from newer entrants trying to replicate the Trade Desk's demand-side platform, follow the open internet thesis. And then they potentially face competition from the ad publishers that they work with. You know, take Spotify, for example. If Spotify grows to a 1.5 billion user platform, they may build a walled garden of their own. Walmart, another huge partner with the Trade Desk, same thing, right? Like, if at some point the size is there, it almost doesn't make sense not to build their own walled garden. And they may not. They may stick to being a true believer in the open internet. They may find that the lower margin businesses, Spotify and Walmart, both kind of lower margin businesses, they may hinder their ability to really go down the building their own walled garden route. But that risk is there. And then on top of that risk and the competition from the other demand side platforms, from the walled gardens, on top of all of that, this competition is only really going to increase as the total addressable market grows and more and more of advertising goes online. Some of the tailwinds to the industry start to take effect. You know, it's just going to be a very competitive landscape. Quick break here from the episode, folks, to shamelessly self-plug the other parts of Hourglass Investing. If you're enjoying the episodes and you want to get in on some more of the action, I've got good news for you. On top of these Tuesday podcast episodes, I also do weekly newsletters that have recommended reads, weekly watch list stocks, investing tidbits, and highlights on other investor articles and writers. Every two weeks, I also do company-specific research articles that get into a company's history, business model, balance sheet, industry, the investment potential. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything you need to know about the company I'm looking at at that time. So if that all sounds good to you, head on over to my Substack at Hourglass Investing, or you can check out my website for the full archive of materials at hourglassnetwork.ca. All right, let's get back into it. Now, that's already a huge amount of risk for the trade desk, but I'd really be doing you all a disservice if I didn't talk about another huge risk slash potentially huge opportunity. Kind of have yet to see how this one plays out. It could go either way. But that risk slash opportunity is data. It's actually a huge part of the conversation on the trade desk and Again, kind of something that I wanted to get into in the last episode, but didn't have a chance to as it already run long. So in the past, non-walled garden advertisers have very much relied on third-party cookies to track customer habits and interests, and through that, deliver targeted ads. But in the last few years, we've seen a huge move against third-party tracking by regulators, especially in the EU by automatically blocking third-party cookie tracking unless they're explicitly allowed. Now, this is sort of a benefit for the walled gardens in that they're able to collect first-party data, that is, data collected right on the platform that the consumer is using. 
And as these moves against third-party tracking and cookies are implemented, and likely even grow into the future, then that could increase the attractiveness of the walled garden approach and potentially the number of advertisers that want to move towards these walled gardens and use them for advertising just because they're able to collect that first-party data, which will become inherently more valuable under this newer system. But with the trade desk, if they want to get customer data, and they do, they need that data to drive the analytics, provide those return on ad spend figures, deliver targeted ads to consumers, uh, kind of everything that makes the entire trade desk platform so effective in the first place, they need data for that. But if they want it, they need companies and customers to opt into something called the Unified ID 2.0. Now, the risk is what I was just talking about. First-party data becomes more valuable. Advertising through the walled garden approach may in turn become more valuable too. But this Unified ID tool from the Trade Desk is where the opportunity comes in. So Unified is essentially a data opt-in tool for consumers so that companies can track their data and then provide targeted ads and content for them. But Unified ID is not a cookie replacement, and this is the big ticket item. Where third-party cookies have been kind of the bane of user privacy on the internet, Unified ID is focused on enhancing consumer privacy. So for consumers, it, it allows an opt-in relationship that lets them choose which sites, which platforms have access to their first-party data tracking as well as secure storage of that first-party data. It allows this first-party data to then get transferred to ad publishers so that consumers can be shown targeted ads, but, and this is the key part on why people want to opt in, this process doesn't involve transfer of consumer data itself. Unified ID hashes consumer data and email addresses, which essentially just means that the consumer's personal data can't be sold or directly accessed, and email addresses can't be sold to other parties that consumers haven't opted into. It's essentially encrypted data. So the ad publishers and the DSPs have access to all of the data, data that they need to provide targeted ads. But other than that, the, the personal consumer data isn't transferred at all. That's kept secure under this encrypted system. So between that hashed data, that encrypted system, and the ability to opt in and out of data tracking on individual sites, consumers are actually given way more privacy on the internet without sacrificing on the more enjoyable aspects like targeted ads. And for marketers, it's also way better too, so that encourages kind of a two-way buy-in system. Unified ID allows marketers to access data on reach, on frequency, and on data usage across all of the digital channels to reach a wider range of consumers. So where third-party cookies don't work on digital home tech or connected TV, and again, that's the fastest growing digital channel, you obviously want data tracking on connected TV as a marketer. So Unified ID as a cookie replacement is able to work on everything. And because it uses first-party data instead of third-party cookies, it's actually much more accurate than these third-party cookies and so leads to even more targeted marketing, even greater value for advertisers, and even more value for ad publishers as well. Now, there is for sure some risk with the opt-in aspect. You know, I, I can guarantee you there's going to be some people that just don't want to be tracked at all, like probably your, your doomer uncle with the, the nuclear vault in his basement. He's never going to opt in. 
But ultimately, because of that overwhelming data on consumer preference for targeted ads, I just don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. If people have to see some file builds that has nothing to do with them pop up on their timeline, or they can take two seconds to opt into this data tracking thing and get actually interesting ads, I think the vast majority of people are going to do the opt-in. And especially as, you know, the Trade Desk is working to turn the Unified ID 2.0 tool into the new industry standard for internet and advertising privacy. And I think as it, you know, catches on and, and becomes that industry standard, if it does, I should say, then you'll have more and more people opting into this system. Now, it actually reminds me a little bit of a late 90s Amazon adding reviews to the product pages, even if they were negative, which they actually had a lot of pushback for at first. Jeff Bezos wrote about this extensively in his annual shareholder letters that even though it may not have been good for upfront revenues, in the long term, it created a better and a more user-friendly system that kept people coming back time and time again. It was really that, that people and customer-centric focus that allowed Amazon to really succeed and stand out while all of these other boom-and-bust internet companies were dropping like flies. And Unified ID, it definitely fits a similar thesis to me. Maybe some lost upfront revenues in terms of people opting out of that tracking, but the longer-term opportunity to create consumer privacy on the internet, in addition to building on top of and encouraging an open internet, it's ultimately better for the consumer. Now, for sure, it's still something that's being worked towards. I would not by any means say it's the industry standard yet, and it may not ever be the industry standard. That's where the risk comes in. But my ultimate thesis when it comes to these data and walled garden risks, I guess really comes down to being a believer in the open internet and in user privacy, and that these will win out because they serve people. Firstly, I think they'll win because they're on the right side of antitrust and privacy regulators. Secondly, I think the internet is going to become a lot more fragmented in the future, ultimately whether it's helped along by regulators or not. There's simply going to be a greater number of internet companies, tools, providers, etc., in my opinion anyways, and especially as AI comes out and, you know, everyday Joe Blows like myself have access to things that allow them to create more internet tools without any engineering experience. So I think AI is going to be a big tailwind to that fragmentation. And if true, then that will mean more platforms, more publishers, more advertisers across the globe. And the cumulative effect of a million tiny players, in my opinion, again, will be greater than the effect of a few massive players. And ultimately, that's just going to encourage more advertisers to move towards the open internet approach, and that will allow the trade desk to continue growing as the walled garden methods lose that market share. Now, I may be completely wrong about this, like very, very wrong. Certainly, there's enough risk potential to make me wrong. And if so, you could all point to me in a few years, you know, you can laugh and call me an idiot. It may end up just being the complete opposite of what I'm thinking, where the largest companies, they get even bigger. Regulators aren't able to control them at all. They're able to consolidate more of the internet, create more of the world's leading tools, and really add to the scale of their platforms, and ultimately, the effectiveness of that walled garden approach. But my thesis is that the open internet will win out over the industry behemoths, 
And if that turns out right, then the Trade Desk as the leading DSP provider will be one of the main beneficiaries of a wider shift towards open source digital advertising. Whew. Okay, that was a super long look at the industry. That was almost an episode by itself. So I better start flying through the moat, the growth opportunities, the balance sheet, and the valuation here before this turns into a full trilogy on the trade desk, which I'm trying to avoid because I have a very interesting first look episode planned for next week on an audience requested company. So we need to wrap up the trade desk today and return to the normal scheduling. So growth opportunities, honestly, it's pretty simple. Just a few main growth levers for the trade desk to pull. But if they do a good job on those, they're going to do pretty well. First of all, just growing brand awareness towards the programmatic advertising model and the benefits that it and Unified ID 2.0 can provide for marketers, ad publishers, and consumers, especially as third-party cookies are phased out. The other main growth lever, which is also sort of their moat against other DSPs and actually a bit of competitive advantage against the walled gardens as well, is just growing out their network of publishers. So as they get more premium ad publishers and platforms to partner with their demand side platform, they'll be able to display ads to a much wider range of customers across more categories and interests. And that will ultimately make the Trade Desk much more appealing to advertisers that will be incentivized to partner with them over other DSPs and potentially over walled gardens as well. Now, balance sheet, I mean, especially considering that the Trade Desk is definitely still a growth-oriented company, it's looking pretty sexy. Firstly, there's the performance that it's had to date. Over the last five years, revenues have grown at a 34% compounded annual growth rate. EPS at 16% and free cash flows at 134%. That's still CAGR, by the way, not total growth. 134% compound annual growth rate in free cash flows to put them at a clean $600 billion plus in free cash flows over the last 12 months. So that nets their cash position at nearly $1.1 billion US, more than enough to cover their completely non-existent long-term debt. Margins all sitting pretty well, 81% gross, 12% EBITDA, 8.5% operating, and a really impressive 33% free cash flow margin. Those are all really great. EBITDA operating and net profit margins have shrunk over the last few years, but gross and free cash flow margins have grown pretty significantly over that same period. And then the final point I'll cover on the balance sheet is again sort of flying through this right now i'm sorry uh are the capital efficiency metrics and this is this is one of the things that i always look at in a company five-year averages for returns on invested capital 29 percent equity at 18.5 percent and capital employed at 15 and a half percent those are all really strong unfortunately these have all been steadily tricking downwards since about late 2020 when they peaked after just several years of growing. I'm not too concerned about this personally. I think for both the capital efficiency metrics and the margins shrinking since that 2020 peak, it's mostly just attributable to the fact that, you know, it's been a tougher macroeconomic environment, if you haven't heard. Uh, most companies just aren't seeing the expected returns on capital that they were able to enjoy during a low rate environment. It just sort of puts strains on the costs of everything. 
lowers the return hurdles, et cetera, et cetera. And almost no one is more affected by this than the advertising slash marketing companies. Selling expenses, just naturally, they're, they're typically one of the first areas to get cut by companies going through some tougher times. And then they usually pick up again in a more friendly economic environment. And just because of that, the advertising industry as a whole can be really cyclical. And if I had to take a guess, I would say the shrinking metrics are mostly just due to the low swing in that cycle. Now, final and very brief note on valuation here before I wrap things up. And I'll warn you now, it ain't pretty. The Trade Desk trades at a multiple of 236 times earnings, 18 times EV to sales, and 61 times free cash flow. Now you take this with all of the risks, you take this with lower guidance on the rest of the year's results and the fact that, you know, it's currently in the downswing part of a cyclical industry, that may seem completely unreasonable to you. And, and maybe that's true. But let's be frank, this is an incredibly risky company. And I think if you're approaching it from that angle, there's no way you'd ever understand why this company has been one of the best performing stocks since its IPO with a nearly 55% compound annual growth rate in the share value. But if you think about the company and its valuation from the standpoint of like, okay, let's add a little optimism to the equation here. Obviously, you know, always you work to understand the risks, but what reasons are there to be optimistic? Well, it's operating in a huge industry with some sizable tailwinds. It's got an incredible sort of three-way value proposition that benefits ad publishers, it benefits consumers, and it benefits advertisers. It's grown its top and bottom line figures at incredible rates and has quickly gone from a pure growth company to a very mature and promising growth company with positive earnings, massive cash flows, and it's pioneering a new model of omni-channel digital advertising that has the potential to drive even better results for marketers while setting an industry standard on consumer privacy and maybe even the structure of the entire open internet. There's so, so much to be optimistic about with this company that I've gone through in part one and two. And I think when you start looking at the trade desk from those standpoints, 236 times earnings and an EV to sales at 18x, well, it may not feel great still. And there's some chance that it's still too highly valued, but it starts to make a lot more sense at the very least why that is where it is. And I'm going to call it a wrap there. I hope this two-part series has helped shed some light on the Trade Desk's business model, the industry, and some of the finer details on the name. I know it's one that I'm incredibly optimistic about. It is one of the larger and 100% definitely the most expensive company in my portfolio. And as such, I've kept it in a fairly small position size overall. I don't feel super comfortable or confident in my ability to value it at all accurately outside of valuation multiples, just given the kind of two directions, sort of binary outcome possibilities that this company has. If it doesn't work out, you know, whatever, I'm not getting terribly burned. And if it does work out, I think that small position size is going to have some incredible growth and, and turn into quite a large position overall, if my thesis really turns out. And with that incredibly enlightening statement, let's call her there. I'll see you back here next week for an audience requested dive into an interesting company that I'm going to continue keeping top secret for now. You'll just have to tune in next week if you want to reveal the mystery. 
So until then, happy investing, folks. Catch you next week. All right. That's all for this episode of the Hourglass Investing Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series on the Trade Desk and that maybe it helped to shed some light on the business model and a very interesting company. If you got something out of this explanation or last week's uh, that wasn't a nap, then I would super appreciate a quick rating on the show. It takes about 30 seconds and it does a lot to help me out. Gets a little bit more visibility on the show. Makes me blush just so hard. So if you want to make me blush or contribute to making my entire day better, you know, Give her a rating, give her a follow, give her a share. Cheers, guys. See you next week. Quick disclaimer here, folks. I'm not a certified financial planner, analyst, accountant, or anything else to do with finance except a huge nerd. So please don't take anything on this show as investment advice. It's all for entertainment and education purposes. Please, please speak with a registered professional before making any investment decisions and back up everything you hear with your own research. Thanks.